Let's slow it down just a little bit. Let's try and go from our heads to our hearts. We're going to honor six stories tonight. They're offering them to us as a gift, and we need to honor each one of them. Let's pare it down and make life simpler for an hour. Let's stop thinking about what happened before we got here or what we're going to face tomorrow. Let's just slow it down for an hour. So let's pray. We don't have to invite you here, Lord. You are among us always. You say you speak in a still, small voice. Slow us down enough to hear it. We're grateful for the people that are willing to stand and be transparent so that we see that we're far more alike than we are different. So we ask you to bless this evening. Speak to us. You always speak to us if we listen. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. What's it? 
Well, it's we are family, but this is not Sister Sledge, so relax. I came out when I was 17, moved in with my first partner at 18. 21 years with the same person, and it's back in the day when no one was, we were just partners. And by partners, we were just, it was more of a business, and it was a, a long, long road. Small Georgia town, uh, really nowhere else to go, which is why it lasted 21 years, I'm assuming. In that time period, um, had a couple of friends who decided that I would be a good candidate to, for, um, to father their child. It was a lesbian couple, and I agreed uh, against uh, my partner's wishes and his entire family. And for six months, we tried and tried and tried and tried. It never worked. It was a crushing blow because I always wanted family, my family. So jump ahead, end of relationship, try it again. Nine years with the same person, pretty much the same thing. Uh, no, no chances of fathering and I gave up on all of that because it's just not gonna happen. I can be a super uncle, I can have a lot of fun, but it's not gonna happen for me. That relationship ended and that was it done well not really apparently so in church met a couple with a child little monkey crawling up people he was four and um, the backstory on that is Butch's story not my story and all of a sudden you realize that there is something out there there's something more important to something more elusive that you can't control, but it's out there. Glenn, was I supposed to tell you when to do it? Sorry. So we quickly, very quickly became a family. It was total immersion. Um, four months after Butch and I had started dating, his mother passed away. So I got to, um, I was there at the funeral with him, his family, his ex-partner, Landy's other dad, and Landy. So it was a real interesting, interesting afternoon. But that's what happens with family. You stick it out, you, you, you commit, you become loyal. And that loyalty is um, something that pushes through. Loyalty is challenged all the time, but when you have um, a person who loves you, that's wonderful to hear the first time, I love you. Actually, we did. I adore, I adore, before we got to love. Kind of hard to say. And we just progressed. We did things together, we, f we discovered each other, we discovered all kinds of things. A lot of times I want to be, wanted to be the person there when the Landy was delivered, to, to be that first person to hold him after Butch cut his cord. But that wasn't important, and that's not where he was supposed to be. And I wasn't supposed to have another child, because my life would have significantly changed and I would have never met them. So, you wanna hit the next one? We really became family. Back before it was legal, in all the states, we had a commitment ceremony back in Savannah. At that point, um, it wasn't just the three of us. It was, um, or I'm sorry, the two of us, it was the three of us. And a big part of that ceremony was Landy and I exchanging vows. So he, I may be not his adoptive father, but uh, he sure adopted me. And that's, that's an amazing thing. 
and it it became natural. It settled into not anything different. It became just who I was and who I had been. I just thought that it wasn't going to happen. And then there's Grace Point. So we became family. We were in love. We moved our entire family from Savannah, Georgia here. And it was the most wonderful thing that ever happened because we fell into this family. It wasn't easy getting here, but we got here. And this group of people, these faces, these smiles, these hugs, um, these stories are all of us, and it's what makes us family, and it's what ties us together. How about that last one, Glenn? Great photo, looks photoshopped. But this is our family. Landy and I were up on the roof because we had been watching pumpkin chunking. And we decided to take our Halloween pumpkin and throw it off the roof into the lane and see what would happen. Butch, was, Butch would not. <laughs> you know Butch. You know, it's got to have the right shoes to climb on a roof. <laughs> but in that moment, uh, I believe it was, your, was it Blackberry? I think it, it, yeah, a really old phone because this is quite a long time ago, it seems. He just shot, he just shot that picture because we were chunking pumpkins. We weren't thinking about family. We weren't thinking about something beautiful in an image. We were having fun and that's what family has become. And the thing that goes through this group of people here is fun. We laugh more and cut up and and share really bad stories on top of good stories, but it brings us here. And it makes you so incredibly grateful that you didn't have a child when you thought you would, that your relationships were not working out, that you really hated church. But when you come back to it, you let go of all that you can find yourself being very grateful and very humbled by the love of your family and by the love of this Grace Point family. Thanks. My name's Mandy Marshall, for those who don't know me. I think most everybody does in here. Gosh, Kenny, that was great. Um, and it sort of goes along with uh, some things I'm gonna talk about, uh, putting, putting you in just the right place to be. Um, one of the metaphors that has helped me through my walk with the Lord, and that, that's the metaphor of the tapestry. I'm gonna make the assumption that everybody knows what a tapestry looks like. Uh, it's a beautiful, got lots of colors in it, and if, but if you turn it over and look at the back side, it is absolutely the biggest mess you have ever seen. The, uh, literally, you ought to go on YouTube. YouTube has a picture of somebody working, weaving a tapestry or whatever you call it, and it's really unbelievable because they can't really see what it is they're doing, but you see all the mess. That's how I think we see our lives. And when you turn it over, uh, the beauty of the other side, I think, is what God sees. So I'm going to tell you a tiny, tiny little piece of my tapestry that God wove for me, much like Kenny's part that, that he told us about that was woven for him, that looked like a mess and ended up being, on the other side, an absolutely gorgeous piece. Um, I was a manager of a medical unit, a 25-bed medical unit, very happy, uh, enjoying myself. We had a lot of variety of patients. 
And then God did a little twist for me. (laughs) I was at the time, believe it or not, what we would call now an alt-right Christian. Don't, you can boo if you want to. Um, I really was. I was um, set in my ways. I was absolutely sure of what I believed in and everybody else, bless their hearts, were going to hell. Um, That's tough because in nursing, you take care of anybody that comes and you delight in that. Anybody that, that comes in your sphere for you to take care of, you do it with gusto and enjoyment and making sure that you do everything that you're supposed to do for that person and that family. Well, because of circumstances, um, this was early 80s, and some of y'all probably weren't even born, um, but um, this was a time when AIDS was coming up, and everybody was beginning to realize that it was an epidemic among the gay community. Well because of a certain doctor and his expertise, my unit became an AIDS unit, Uh, which meant that I was confronted with um, what what the disease that all of my people around me and my church and me thought of as God's judgment. They deserve it. They've sinned, and this is the judgment that's come upon them. If you can imagine taking care of and getting to know people, because like I said, it was a death sentence, and people came in and they stayed for a long time. Many died. So you got to know everybody and the families and so forth. And those of you who are nurses, uh, I know we've got one in the audience, um, 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 what I call a magic thing happens when you nurse on people and they need you and you're you're doing a good job. Um, Tommy's seen it. You, You begin to have an affection for your patient. You can't help it, especially if they're a really neat human being. And you see their pain and you see their sorrow And of course, a lot of men were at probably one of the most vulnerable times in their lives. Some of those men are just plastered in my brain. I can remember them so well. Um, The first thing I was confronted with um, was we had a a young man who came in with his partner. He was not real young, but he was 35 or so. Um, And his Baptist minister father and mother found out he was in the hospital and swooped in. They kicked the partner out, did not allow the partner to see him, and they took over his whole care. And I mean, they took over. We got to witness the pain that that caused. Not only did the man die without the love of his life there next to him, But the love of his life never got to see him die, never got to say those wonderful words that that nurses get to see all the time, and that is the I love yous, and all of those things, take care of yourself, etc. That began to rearrange some things in my heart. Because these men, God's judgment, I don't know. Awful, horrible sinners, I just don't know. How can I reconcile the love that I have for these people? Then the other person that I wanted to tell you about was a very, very special man, and I, I don't want to cry because he was—he is just right here in my heart. His name was Eddie, little guy, um, blonde. I'll never forget him. And he had—he was—he's had AIDS, and he was in terrible shape. The thing that was the most beautiful thing about Eddie, besides his spirit, was that every time you went into his room, he would say. You know, you're going to be careful, aren't you? Now, real careful. What is it you're going to do? Are you going to be around a needle? Are you going to mess with my blood? Are you going to be, are you going to bathe me? Okay, well, are you going to be careful, aren't you? He must have said that 35 times a day. You're going to be careful. He cared so much about not transmitting 
the disease to us. And of course, then we thought everybody was infected and you could get it by just walking by somebody. Um, it was such a mystery. How could you not love a man like that? How? I couldn't. And that is a point where I started trying to reconcile what I thought I believed with what life really was about. The mystery of seeing people that you're afraid of, that you think you hate, that you don't agree with, Republicans, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> when you really truly get involved in their lives, then you begin to love them and the judgments come down. Um, it was a watershed moment for me. I can't wait to get to heaven or across the bridge or whatever, you know, whatever we want to call it. Um, I can't wait to see my tapestry and I can't wait to see y'all's. I bet it's really gorgeous because I will know exactly where that was woven and what a beautiful piece it was. Um, and the second one I want to see is Mother Teresa's. That, brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. Grace Point stands unique in this community. I've been asked to do the offering. I think I just did the offering. We stand unique in this community. We need to stand strong. And this city needs to hear our stories. So before we do communion, I'm gonna give you a couple of announcements. So those of you that attend Midrash, Wednesday night, we're not gonna have Midrash Wednesday night. We're having a special annual church meeting. It's when the leadership committee uh, will bring five new people to vote for you to consider. If you wonder who they are, this is outside when you walk out. Talks a little bit about who the five people are. And so, um, 6.30, Wednesday night here, usually lasts about an hour. And we're hoping everybody comes. We have to make Grace Point what we want it to be. To make Grace Point what we want it to be, you've got to be involved. And coming to the meeting, first meeting, the annual meeting, please come. Please do that. A couple of other things. Uh, after this, you guys may have seen all the Facebook notices and everything. We're going to go right in here. People brought homemade soup, so we're going to eat together. And we're going to do kind of fun because everybody in here has a story, right? We've got six people sharing tonight, but every one of us has a story. So we're going to have a kind of a little interesting thing we're going to do while we eat soup to learn each other's stories just a little bit. And the other thing I want to do is welcome the visitors. If you're here, <laughs> boy, did you come on a special night. This is great. So if you're here, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. Come back next week. It's a good thing. So let's just pray for the offering. Father, this community is yours. We're not 10% givers. You ask us to be 100% givers. Not just our money, but ourselves. You call us to community. To be community, we have to give to one another. We thank you for the six people that are giving at us tonight. Help us do what we need to do to grow this community. Let this message and this light shine to two million people in this city. That's what you've called us to be and that's what you've called us to do. Help us be obedient. Amen.
I could feel the white shag carpeting burning the back of my neck as my boyfriend held my esophagus in one hand and raised the other behind his head. And I said, please, I'm sorry. And this was a story that I thought about telling tonight, but I've learned that it is as important as when you tell your story and how you tell your story and to whom you tell your story to as it is telling your story in the first place. It was the summer I turned 23 and my family had planned a vacation to go fishing up in Canada. And my mom and my sister had conflicts, so it turned out to just be my dad and I. And I was getting nervous, uh, kind of because I didn't really know my dad. I mean, he had raised me, I grew up in his house, I knew that he fell asleep watching MASH every night, I knew he loved black coffee, and we had this unofficial family motto that said, no blood, no tears, Alquist. And, uh, but I didn't, I didn't really know him. I didn't know him as a man, I didn't really know him that well as my father. And so here we are, a former trucker, an aspiring roadie, arguing over the best way to put fishing poles into the trunk of my car, and I knew this was about to be a very long week. So we, get, we send off, we're about six hours in, it's been six hours of silence, and I'm sitting there, and I don't know if it was looking down at 18 more hours of silence, or just the maddening Illinois cornfields passing out the passenger side window, but I hear my own voice saying, oh, you know, Dad, we've never had the sex talk. What do you got? My dad says to me, well, what do you want to know? Well, Dad, I mean, like, I know how it works. Like, I know, like it's not like I haven't had, I mean, it's not like I've had it. I mean, it's like, it's like sex. Oh, God. And so in this moment of awkward silence, as my brain is beginning to have its own functional meltdown, I start going over my head, okay, okay, it's, it's gonna be okay, Annie. It's gonna be okay. Like the ball's now in his court. Am I thinking about the proverbial throwing of balls while talking to my dad in a conversation that I should have had in middle school? Okay, is it hot in this car? It feels really hot in this car. Does this seat have an ejection seat? Am I thinking about ejection while talking to my dad about sex? Oh my God, okay. And as my brain is literally melting inside of my skull, I hear my dad's voice and he is talking about sex. And he's talking about it in a way that's weird and dad-like, but it's actually a conversation. And this conversation started a series of other conversations throughout that week. We talked about life and love, and we argued about politics and religion. And one night we were talking about music and we both settled that one of our favorite songs is the song Danny Boy. And so my dad and I set out and we went to the south end of the island where we were staying and we turned towards the west to watch the sun setting over the lake and as the ambers and the burnt siennas and the plums glistened over us, we began to sing. Oh Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. And when we hadn't seen a single soul in days, two men in a fishing boat come right around the island. And does that deter my dad and I? From glen to glen and down the mountainside. They were not about to wreck my daddy-daughter moment. Mm -mm. So the next morning we get up and we take the boat to the north end of the lake. And at the north end of that lake, there's a man named Pat who is a hermit and while he is a Aging alcoholic, he is also sort of a genius because he's, he's put together this contraption that will take your boat up and over the land and into the next lake. And so he sets us into the next lake and my dad and I take the boat to the north end of that lake. And at the north end of that lake, we tie our boat off and we start carrying and portaging our gear to get to the next lake. And at that next lake, as I am carrying an outboard motor across my shoulders with oil dripping down my arms, I see in the clearing an overturned metal boat. And I look at my dad and my dad, without missing a beat, kneels down and begins to clear the moss off and duct tape the holes. And I think to myself, this is where I die. And so we get in, we attach the motor and we shove off into what becomes one of my most perfect days. We trolled the shorelines for a couple hours hoping to catch a walleye or a lake trout or even a northern. But we're mostly catching sticks and a lot of good memories. 
And as we are throwing back our, uh, our prize trophy twigs, our motor stops. Now, we are on a lake, beyond a lake, beyond a lake, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Canada, and I don't have a cell phone. I don't really even know where I am. And I'm thinking, this is about to be a very long day. So we get out our canoe paddles, and we start paddling this boat that was really not made for canoe paddles. And as I'm getting physically exhausted, I start to think to myself, my dad's had cardiovascular problems. So if my dad has a heart attack out here, how am I going to get him back to civilized land? So plan A, I'm going to row this boat back to where we portaged in. I'm going to run across. I'm going to get in our boat. I'm going to go see Pat. Pat's going to drop me in the next lake. I'm going to go to the cabin, but I'm not sure that the cabin has a phone. So plan B. I'm going to take this boat, I'm going to row it back, I'm going to put my 220-pound dad on my back, I'm going to portage him over, I'm going to throw him in our boat, I'm going to go see Pat, Pat's going to dump us in the next lake, I'm going to speed past the island where our cabin is, and I'm going to go to the lodge that surely has a phone. Or plan C, Viking burial. So as I'm planning my dad's fiery funeral in the middle of the Canadian wilderness, something dawns on me. We are now taking on water. So as I am bailing water and paddling and bailing water and paddling, I recognize something else. My dad's not paddling. So this is it. This is that moment that I knew was coming from the minute that we started putting fishing poles into the trunk of my car. I was about to lose it at my dad and this is where it was gonna happen in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Canada, in a lake beyond a lake, beyond a lake, I might drown my dad. So as I'm turning around, to educate my dad with my own rage. I look at him and I see it in his eyes. My dad's happy. And I watched him for a couple moments as he looked over the mirrored surface. And with the dollops of clouds and the blueness of the sky reflecting upwards and the sound of the wind in the trees and the water lapping on the shorelines, I started loving it too. And this random fishing trip started a conversation with my dad that continues today. He's now who I call when I'm happy and he's who I call when I'm scared, which brings me to another carpet and different tears. See, it was a couple years later and it was winter and I was on the, the edge of making the biggest financial decision of my young life. And friend's office, there was paperwork laid out on the table in front of me. And as I looked down to read this contract, there next to my name was the name of my abuser. And as tears were fighting their way out, I looked at my friend and I said, I'm gonna need a minute. So he escorted me to a boardroom and neglecting to turn on the lights, I crawled under the table and I laid on that gray commercial loop carpeting because I didn't know if I wanted to bind my story back with his story. So I called the one man I knew I could survive the Canadian wilderness with, my dad. And as tears dripped down the sides of my face, through my sobs, I, I told him what was going on. I said, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for crying. I just don't know what to do. Just tell me what I should do. And my six foot one, no blood, no tears, tough as nails, John Wayne looking dad said to me, Annie, I don't know why life has thrown you so much in so few years, but I know this. Every time it has, you have handled it with grace and love and kindness and dignity. I am proud of you and never be sorry for crying. Thank you, Dad, and thank you. So don't be too afraid. Uh, I'm not going to actually read from it. Um, <laughs> this is just my really powerful, special Bible. 
I got it February 25th, 1973. It's more ordination Bible. It's special because it says it's the Oxford self-pronouncing Bible. Lo and behold, I have no idea what it pronounces or how it does it by itself because it's kind of always screwed me up. But it's the authorized King James Version, which makes it better. And uh, I've really never used it a lot except when I would preach revivals because I just felt this was a more powerful stance for the photo op, you know? Um, it's really tiny words and even way back then, I couldn't read them. Like a lot of you all, I've sort of gone through a whole bunch of kind of deconstruction stuff over the years. Um, I grew up in a church. A lot of you all grew up in a church. Um, a lot of my life was sort of tangled up there in that kind of space and place. And essentially what's happened for me over the last few years is this. I, my big question has been, what do I do with all that stuff? Do I recant it? Do I say, I was screwed up and I'm sorry and I've got a better way of looking at the world now? Or, or do I try to repackage it and say that, you know, Aunt Lizzie, who always prayed for me, uh, was good and devout and maybe it worked? Uh, I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? And, and the way life has kind of worked out for me, I've sort of needed to know what to do with that. We have this, this picture up here is the, the ceiling of the little church where I grew up. Um, it's my safe place. Now, some of us, um, if, if you've been to my particular therapist, you know you can't hardly start a session without making sure we know where the safe place is. Always scares the hell out of me, to be honest with you, because they'll say, now, are you comfortable with your safe space? And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this one's gonna be really rough. Um, it's kind of like Hansel and Gretel or something. I gotta like drop things to be able to find my way back. And one of the problems I've had with my safe spaces, I've been afraid I've lost it. Um, I grew up in a, in a town, we, we thought of it retrospectively as Mayberry. That was before we knew to call it Mayberry. It was a little bitty, tiny little town. Um, I've since learned that Barney and Andy actually didn't do things to little boys that were done to me uh, in that town. Um, grew up um, in, in, a, in a family that just really had a premium on the boys and strength. My dad was one of five Clark boys and they were all big people. And the last of the Clark boys, we celebrated his 80th birthday last summer and he's still a Clark boy. They're always Clark boys, even when we go down to Vanover's to put on their last clean shirt for them, they're still the boys. And this whole sort of environment of, I don't know, these special, unique people that everybody thought were cut out of a different cloth has always been a little bit of a challenge for me. My dad was very strong, very big, very tall. And there's all kinds of stories about his strength my friend Mac and I one day were standing looking at each at a clothes dryer. We were gonna move it up some tall back stairs into an apartment. And we kept like 20 year olds trying to figure out how best to get a hold of it. Dad comes over there and wraps his big arms around it, rolls it up on his chest and carries it up the stairs. And we're just sitting there kind of mesmerized. Dad comes back and says, hell boy. Anybody can pack a damn dryer, takes a man to carry a washing machine. <laughs> and he picked up the washing machine and carried it up. And there was just always so much certainty and strength and everybody knew what everything was and where it was all going. And we would have those revival meetings and the way church would go. I was maybe the most devout, though my high school principal said that one of the reasons he believed so deeply in God was that if I could change, anybody could. But in spite of that, I had 14 years of perfect Sunday school attendance. I never, ever missed. We did it exactly right. And we'd have those summer revivals where Brother Lindsay would try to literally scare the hell out of us. And that, that ceiling there, uh, this is a little town where there's not much beauty. Um, not to be unkind, but it's, it's actually the kind of town where disability is a career aspiration. We, we grow up trying to figure out how we can get hurt in the mines and not have to go back. It's a coal mining town, holes fall in the ground. But this ceiling was the, was the pretty place. 
and I would look at the ceiling and look at those lights. And have you ever squinted your eyes at lights and, and watch sort of the refraction where the lights just sort of bounce out in all sorts of places? And, and I would do that and, 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 and you know, try to see if I could make the, the sparkles cross the whole ceiling. Um, lived a lot of life over, the, over a long time and there's a whole bunch of things that went on. And, and then I got cancer. That's been several years ago. And then I got cancer again. Now my sister likes to say, my tough big brother, he's two and oh against cancer. He's beat cancer twice. And I'm like, don't tell it that. I'm like, you know, cause I'm afraid it'd be kind of PO'd the next time. And you know, kind of how you're not supposed to like give the other team incentive to kick your butt or something like that. I was like, cancer, promise me, dude, you're a tough fight. I mean, uh, I, you know, it, it was a worthy battle. And I'd begun to, kind of deconstruct. In fact, this Bible became a part of it, but I was reading a, a person who's since become a close friend, a guy named Brian McLaren, most of you all know. Before I knew Brian, I was reading one of his books and I was listening to Brian tell of a new theology, if you will. Now, I have a doctorate in ministries from one of the most conservative seminaries in the world. I also have a doctorate in business. I'm just really weird in that sort of way. I'm reading this book and at first I'm liking it and I'm feeling enlightened by it. And then I began to get frightened by it because I'm like, ooh, he's gonna go all the way there and scared me. And so I put the book down and I tried to go to sleep and I couldn't go to sleep. I went upstairs and hunted until I found my ordination Bible, the black soft leather bound King James version. And I came down and I laid it on top of Brian's book You know, some other thinking maybe this would hold it back. And it laid there for about six weeks. And finally, in, in one of the only times I've ever been flat on my face on the floor in prayer, I said, I do not want to go on if I can't read a book. And so everything kind of deconstructed for me, if you will. I, I mean, I've gone through a lot of stuff like a lot of you all have. And then I got this second cancer. Um, four years ago, this Wednesday, I'll celebrate... Uh, Four years ago this Wednesday was my last uh, treatment for throat cancer, which is, oh, I have to lick my lips a lot. They burn my saliva off. And I would go in there and Mondays were really long. I'd get to Vanderbilt about six. And depending upon what the blood test said, I'd get out at six in the evening or maybe 10 or 11 in the evening. It was really, really long and it was very uh, frightening. Uh, and it was just, just overall kind of a tough spot. And uh, I would go in, in to start the process and I would listen to the music we played in my church growing up. Music I don't believe anymore. I'd listen to Dottie Rambo and the Happy Goodmans. I'd listen to JKS and I would lay there and I'd listen to that music and I would pray. And sometimes when I'd be really scared, I would remember my Uncle John praying. I hope you were blessed enough to have had somebody in your life that somehow or the other just sometimes started to stand up and instead fell down on their knees. And, and I don't even know what he said, but I kept having this thing where I would, would put that ceiling in my mind. And, and I would hear those songs and I started having this battle. How can this be good for me? I don't believe that, but I need that. And it just kept on happening and going. And there's been lots of other stuff that's, that's happened. And then in the last year, um, I began to deal with some particular things. And uh, this ceiling would still be my safe place. And uh, uh, I, th I think one of the hard things for me has been holding on to my safe place. And uh, uh, I, uh, I can still go back. I had, to, I had to kind of walk past some really bad memories right now when I see that ceiling. But for, for some reason, it's still my safe place. And those songs are still my safe songs. 
and the sound and the rhythm of Uncle John's prayer still, still works for me. And how on earth is that true? Well, it's because I've learned what so many other folks have known. I'm a spirit. I was before I am and I will be after I'm not. And you can actually lie down, not sure you can get up. If you know that as we've been taught for those of us with Christian traditions from the apostle that really this is just my temporary abode. And so my safe place works for me because my faith has moved from between my ears where I try to figure it all out and all my propositional truth statements and all of my education. And it's, it's maybe in my heart, but maybe it's someplace even not there. I believe as much in Uncle John's prayers as I ever did, though I don't even like what he said. And so I've, I've, I no longer have to be ashamed. I'd love to take you back to my home church and they'll do things that, well, you'll know what they'll do. And you know what else? It'll be okay. It's my safe spot. Thank you. Hearing another person's story is like looking through someone else's photograph album. What holds you, if nothing else, is the possibility that somewhere along and among all those shots of people, people you never knew in places you never saw, somewhere there you may come across something or someone you recognize. In fact, even in the stranger's album, there's always the possibility that as the pages flip one by one, one of them may even catch a glimpse, a glimpse of yourself. And even if both of those fail, there's still a third possibility, which is perhaps the happiest of them all. And that is, once the storyteller has put away their album for good, you may, in the privacy of your heart, take out the album of your own life and search it for the people and places you have loved and learned from yourself. You may search that album for those moments in the past, many of them now half forgotten, for which you glimpsed, however dimly and fleetingly, the sacredness of your own journey. Um, you guys, perhaps it may be a, a strange awakening, but this, this girl, my, me, um, I grew up in Kansas um, listening to Motown. <laughs> and I also got a steady dose of Amy Grant and Reba Rambo, who I will admit to you now, I actually thought her name was Reba Rainbow. And <laughs> it was only until I moved to Nashville from California with my husband that I realized very recently that her name was Rambo. It just to a six-year-old, Rambo just seems so much more exciting. And I, I probably saw the album cover that said Rambo, but we see what we want to see, and we hear what we want to hear, and I wanted her to be a rainbow. So that's who she was for me. Um, <clears throat> for the record, I also thought Air Supply's song, Making Love Out of Nothing at All, the refrain was, um, creepy crawl. <laughs> Go with me here for a second. So, making love out of nothing at all. Creepy crawl out of nothing at all. Creepy crawl. <laughs> and I became known by everyone as that girl who just kind of made up lyrics that kind of fit my life. There was no rhyme or reason to it. It just made sense to me. And anyway, back to, to Motown, I, um, I love songs like Heat Wave, and I love songs like Ain't Too Proud to Beg, and it's no surprise, perhaps, that during my young adolescence, I fell in love with Michael Jackson. He was 
worthy of my love letters, and actually during confession, I said, I love Michael Jackson more than I love God. <laughs> and that brought about a serious conversation about my eternal salvation. It was really um, difficult, as you can imagine, but he was that for me. He was like a God to me. Be it was because he made me feel the way that I thought God should make me feel. He made me feel happy and free, and he made me feel buoyant and alive. And so Michael Jackson was this perfect conduit of God for me, and I was looking for anywhere, any place to create that feeling for myself. And so I knew I didn't particularly possess the, the vocal strength to become like the next Gladys Knight or something like that, but I wanted to go and be with the people who did have that talent. And so that led me on this journey to join a 100-person, all-black gospel choir at West Angeles Church of God in Christ in Los Angeles on Crenshaw Boulevard. And um, I, I didn't possess the guts to go in there and just say, I wanna be the next Pip and I'm gonna you know, join you. But apparently I did have the guts to go in there and say, I wanna join you. And I thought, you know, this might not go over too well. And it didn't. <laughs> um, when I auditioned, I sang and the director of music just looked at me and said, Wendy, Sister Wendy, thank you so much for coming, but you're not quite what we're looking for at this time. You guys, I was devastated. I was so devastated. And I walked back into that sanctuary and I just looked around and I, like a kicked aside dog, I picked up my purse and I was walking out and by, oh, God's most beautiful grace, the assistant pastor of music was there. And I just heard this voice and I heard go to him. And I said, I can't tell you how important this is, but this music and this place and these songs are God to me. They are speaking God's beauty to me. They are speaking God's truth to me, and I need you to give me this chance. And the next week, <laughs> I was in a row, baby. Um, and I sang my white black off, and it was so good. It was so good. It felt, it felt so good. And some weeks later, I showed up on Sunday morning and mother, as everyone called her, I don't know her name, nobody knew her name. She was like this 3,000 year old woman who was the troop leader for the choir and she ran everything and she, no one messed with her and she did not like me. <laughs> she, re she really didn't like me. And it's, it's okay, sometimes you just know, like you're, you're just, you are ships and it's just. <clears throat> anyway, I tried to very respectfully keep my space from her as a, just a sign of respect and of, I don't, know, I don't want to come here and take anything from you. I don't know what this brings up for you, me being here, if that's even it, I don't even know. Um, but some weeks after this, she looked at me and she said, go home. And I said, why? And she said, look at your feet. My, my toes were showing through my shoes. And you don't do that. And for one, I had not been told this rule, this shoe toe rule. And um, I didn't take it very well. For one, I was really embarrassed 
because she kind of called me out in front of everyone. I was, I was horrified. And two, that was the day we were going to sing the best song, in my opinion, that can be sung in a place of worship. Grateful by Hezekiah Walker. And I did not want to miss this opportunity at all. It was like why I had come, the whole thing. So I decided, all right, I'm gonna drive home <clears throat> 30 minutes. I'm gonna grab some like grandma nurse looking shoes and I'm gonna come back. And if I time it all perfectly, I'm gonna make it in time and it's gonna happen. So when I came back, I ran in and I ran into like the side of the stage and I saw mother there. And I looked at her and I knew there was nothing that she could say. She couldn't stop what I had begun. And I walked out on stage, I had made it. I'd made it. I had chosen and I had risked. And it may sound so strange, but I literally risked everything that day. I risked feeling the shame of not belonging. I risked really wanting something and really needing something and not getting it. And I risked being worth it. I, I risked that God's love would be enough to meet me there on that stage. And I had been praying for so many years for God to be a part of my life in indwelling. I just kept asking, please, please inhabit my life. Please be a part of my life. And it was just this constant, constant invitation until in that moment, we met, we melded, we connected, we accepted one another in the, the running home, in the putting yourself out there, in the risk. And in that moment, I was so grateful. And I just want you to hear a little bit of this song, just to be in the space that I was in, in that moment of fully accepting, indwelling. some five years later when I was uh, at the hospital birthing my first child, Axel. And um, I had, a little side note, I had decided to hypnobirth my child. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, that looks like a lot of pain and a lot of moaning. And you're like creating this place of waterfalls flowers and like waves, yeah. So 44 hours into my labor, so 44, um, when my body was shaking, like I was hooked up to a jackhammer, I was feeling less than hypnotized at that moment. And 
Needless to say, when I have my second child, Ozzy, who's now two, I decided not to hypnobirth. 36 hours into that one, I decided that a good old epidural would be good. So I'm cool with that. But anyway, after 44 hours, the doctor had come in and she just said, Wendy, I'm gonna call it. The baby needs to come. This isn't healthy for him anymore. This isn't healthy for you anymore. We need to have this child. And I remember feeling so devastated in that moment and like, like a failure. Like everything I had been practicing was just sunk. And what is it about who I was being? What is it about? What is it that I couldn't let go of to have him come and be with me? And I realized I just couldn't relax. I just couldn't let go. And my husband, Stephen, um, just looked at me. Oh man. He just looked at me and he said, Wendy, you've got to walk into the pain. You have got to walk into your fear. And when you do, he will come. When you do, he'll be born, he'll be with us, and it will be worth it. And so I realized in that moment how many times and how many places and how many locations I have resisted my life. How many times I've tried to control it and manipulate it and protect it so that I wouldn't get hurt. I wouldn't feel those things I was so terrified of feeling. And I had to let all of that go so I could birth this baby. And I had to let all of that go in that moment so I could birth myself. And I told Stephen, put on grateful. I need to hear it because for two days I have been hearing just the sound of my own rhythmic moaning and, and just devastation and just this tunneling in rather than opening up to be accepting of this experience, this child, myself, this birth. And so we turned it up, we turned it way up. And the doctors and the nurses and the midwives were all kind of like looking at each other. It's a little <clears throat> strange to have <laughs> this song in this birth space, <clears throat> excuse me. But anyway, I told them, I'm delivering this baby and I'm delivering it now, get ready. <laughs> and to the lyrics, grateful, 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 gratefulness. It's flowing from my heart. He came. And I feel like I have stepped into and owned and possessed that power ever since. Because I'm a mother. But what I realized so much through that journey is that I'm also a child. I'm a beloved child of God, and I always have been. I've always had this power, I've always had this goodness. I just needed to give it to myself, I needed to accept it. So, never in need to question my place in this world again. And those boys, and this boy, have helped me to get there really grateful for my family and this family. Thank you.